Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Greetings, good people. You are listening to episode 153 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring tennis ace Tanasi Kokonakis. Kokonakis conquers all in Adelaide. How fitting he wins his maiden title in his hometown. Now, before we get into Tanasi, a thanks from Adam Gilchrist and I to all of you that sent messages after listening to the Andrew Simons tribute we put out a few days ago. I must admit I was a little unsure about releasing it as it was so raw, but to hear it impacted so many people in such a positive way that it gave you plenty of laughs and admittedly some tears as well. It was cool to get all that feedback. I've replied to as many of the messages as I can. If I haven't replied to your message, please know I've read it and I really, really appreciate it. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Okay, short intro from me today To simply say, Tanasi struck me as a really nice chap. He's relaxed, he's full of fun and laughs, and due to the hard road he has forged, he has a great perspective on life, especially for a bloke who is only 26. What it takes to become a professional tennis player, a behind-the-scenes look at the tour, injuries, prize money, the Australian Open, alongside Nick Kyrgios and plenty more. This is just a cruisy chat about tennis and, I guess, about life. Just to let you know. There is some swearing in this one if the kids are listening. Nothing concerning at all from where I sit, but I'll leave that call to you. Enjoy the story of a bloke doing his best to perform, to entertain, and to enjoy life. Tanasi Kokonakis. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me we want to reach Mount Zion. Wow, what about this retreat? In person, welcome to the Howie Games. A man with a big smile on his face, which I always enjoyed, Tanasi Kokonakis. We met a minute and a half ago. It was a pleasure to see you, mate. Thanks for coming on the show. It's mutual, mate. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. And the first thing you said as you were walking up was, hmm, this radio caper looks fun as we were walking past the radio studios. I could see this for you down the track, maybe. It was uh, You yeah. immediately had an interest in it. Yeah, I... It's weird when you've been injured for a while. Sometimes you start thinking about what's sort of post, post tennis and post career and media, TV sort of stuff. But looking at the radio setup, it seems uh, seems a bit more chill. So that could be me. Me and my mate were talking about it. He's a comedian as well, so I think it could fit potentially. Comedian as well as in you're a pretty funny dude as well, no, or he's a comedian separate to you. He's a comedian separate <laughs> right. to me. I have my moments. Well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I can tell you now, TV is two hours before you're required. So if you were doing a tennis match and you were commentating on it two hours before, mate, hair, makeup, going through rehearsals, radio, twenty seconds before, bodies, thongs. Bang! That sounds on like me. Yeah, that sounds I, like I think me. that's more you. <laughs> and there's so much to talk about with you. Um, but I said to Bianca, I was fortunate enough, um, who's here with you, I was fortunate enough a couple of weeks ago to have a sporting event off and get to go to it, which is rare for me, and went to the Australian Grand Prix. And I was mm. sitting there with my beautiful wife having a beer afterwards, and you were walking into the same area where I was. And I, I don't mean to embarrass you, mate, but it was fair income like Lewis Hamilton had walked in. There was people 
Yeah. Everywhere. Well, it shocked me completely. So tell me about, we'll get to the Australian Open, but tell me how life has changed because it was like, this is rock star material for our man. And how I is sound, that? I sound like an idiot saying this, but like that one was crazy. Yeah. I, I, I looked at Bianca, I looked at my brother, I was like, it was my birthday that day as well. But I, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. I had all these cameras on me. I legitimately felt like I'd done everything. Like it was, it was nuts. I wasn't expecting that. You know, when you go out and on the street, you get stopped and stuff like that. But yeah, walking down that, especially with how many big names walked mm. down there, it felt yeah. like I was getting crazy amount of attention. This is com- what I thought. Yeah, which completely caught me off guard. So I was surprised about it and it was a bit of a shock to me. I was a little bit, a little bit hungover. I had a decent night the <laughs> night before, I'm not going to lie. It's birthday weekend, so I had to let it go a bit. But uh, yeah, no, it definitely caught me by surprise. It was pretty cool. And how are you dealing with increased awareness, fame, whatever you want to call it, when you're walking down the street and more people know who you are? How, how do you go with that? Yeah, I'm all right. Fortunately, I was kind of thrown into the spotlight at a young age. Yes. Um, so I kind of got used to it, a little bit of a taste. And then I got injured for a few years and I kind of saw that kind of flip the other way where it's just like you're not getting as much attention, you're not getting as much sort of uh, awareness around you and whatever. And then obviously a big summer I've had and big sort of last sort of few months um, and that kind of skyrocketed again. So it's something I'm used to. Um, most people that come up are pretty polite. You get a few people here and there that uh, talk a bit of shit, but uh, for, for the most part, no, everyone's nice and I just try and give everyone the time of day and be polite back. I noticed watching you play during the Australian Open, and I've seen it before, you're very, very polite to the ball boys and ball girls um, and you're not at this stage yet, but as a parent, parents notice these things. Yeah. W- what is it like for you when then youngsters come up um, and they look up to you because you are a tall chap with yeah. stars in their eyes and they want to do something that you've done? How, how, when you become that role model to kids, how's that hit you? Oh, it's awesome. Is I mean, it? that's what, yeah, it, it's it's kind of what you play for. It sounds a bit cliche, but it, it truly is because, like, we were, well, I was that person once at a young age, kind of growing up in the stands, watching my favorite players play. And it's crazy watching young kids that love it so much. They don't know how big of a journey it is, but they're just kind of soaking in every moment. So you can see how happy they are to see you. And it kind of, it honestly makes your day because it like gives you the motivation to kind of keep going. It's, it's pretty cool. It's great to hear. Who was your heroes? Were they tennis heroes or were you getting autographs or who were you looking up to saying, wow, I hope I could do what they do one day? Um, I was a big, big NBA fan growing up. So right. Tracy McGrady was my favorite right. player uh, coming through. So I was a big NBA fan. And then when I started to pick up a lot more tennis, uh, I loved Baghdadis. Um, being Greek Marcos. and him playing in, in Australia, yeah, he was he was going off. And when he made the final of Aussie Open, it yep. went nuts. And that massive Greek sort of population and following in Australia was uh, was awesome. I love Safin as well. Um, Who had a big run at the Open as well. He had his box just full yeah. of blonde ladies. I'm sure that caught your attention <laughs> as well. It did catch my attention. It was a little <laughs> bit different. But uh, just the way he went about it, he was just a cool dude. And kind of, I think uh, back then there was a bit more chance to show your personality a little bit in tennis and I think uh, I think I preferred that so that's why I like those guys had a lot of energy which is the gist of what we'll talk about with you mate because as a sports commentator I love entertainment I think we're all in the entertainment caper you are as well so yeah. so we'll get to that and what you are bringing to tennis but um, you talked about the Greek population. If you don't mind me asking, can you tell me a bit about your family's history because it's often the generations that make the move from Europe to Australia that don't have things so easy. So here's some incredible stories. Yeah. Can you tell me the, the story of your, is it your, were your parents the first to move to Australia or grandparents or how far back? Grandparents. Grandparents. Yeah, grandparents were the first ones to move. Um, yeah, obviously didn't grow up with much money. Uh, grandparents came over. What, um, when would that have been? My dad came over with my grandparents when he was five. Wow. Yeah, uh, from Greece. And then 
yeah, he was living in Australia, then went back to Greece on holiday uh, when he was 25, met my mum and brought her over. So real, right. real romantic story <laughs> for you. Uh, yeah, so both my, both my parents were born and raised in Greece for the most part. And uh, yeah, I was born in Adelaide and here I am. And do you have a connection to your, I'm, I'm sure Greek spoken at home, at, at, yeah. you know, et cetera? Yeah, well, it was big when my when my grandparents were around. They were always only speaking to me in Greek. Mum speaks to me in Greek a lot. She's got a fairly strong Greek accent. Dad came here when he was five, so he's kind of uh, got that Aussie accent. But uh, yeah, my mum usually speaks to me in Greek and I reply in English. So right. I understand everything. I did Greek school and all that. But uh, when I was living in Greece for a few months when I was younger, I used to speak fluent Greek really well. Uh, but now I kind of just tank and just reply in English makes it easier. The reception, though, you mentioned Baghdadis. It's always been the same. Like the Greek players in Melbourne have always got a yeah. tremendous recognition from the crowd. And again, we saw it during the A. But like, it, yeah. it must be nice to have two nations rather than one cheering for. One hundred percent. The more the merrier. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> not complaining, but having that both support. You know, as well, if you're playing like another Aussie, say, you know, you're going to get some Australians and you're going to get the Greeks behind you. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not complaining. Having two is perfect. I hope there's uh, ends up being a couple bigger professional events coming in Greece. Uh, I reckon that would be cool. Well, I think with the higher profile of Greek players at the moment, like pass and these guys, yeah. sure, surely that begins to happen. Yeah. Now, tennis. Where, where does tennis hit your world as a young bloke? Were you into all sports? Were you, did you want to be a doctor? What, like, how, <laughs> how did you get to where you are here? Yeah, I didn't have the uh, educational capabilities right. to be a doctor, right. I don't think. I uh, found that out pretty quickly. Uh, both my, well, my dad is an engineer, my brother's an engineer. I've got a pretty smart family. So what happened? Um, yeah, I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was thrown into the sporting life at a pretty young age. As I said, I was playing basketball a lot. I was taking that seriously. Um, and then I realized I was pretty selfish. So I found out in basketball, the only way I'd be happy is if I had an unbelievable game and my team won. If I had an unbelievable game, my team lost, I'd be pissed. If I didn't play well and my team won, I'd be pissed because I didn't play well. Oh, yeah. And then, so I was like, I need to pick up something that's uh, it's a bit more on me and I can kind of take responsibility. So yeah, I chose tennis when I was sort of 12 or 13 to take seriously and, and went from there. And where does one start playing? Like, it's the local. Tell me about your your local club. Like, often we have cricketers on this show, yeah. and it's like, you know, they talk us through their their backyard pitch and what it was like, and you know, the lemon tree might have been out or yeah. the, the glass house. Well, where did you first start playing tennis? Well, yeah, I just copied my brother with every sport, um, pretty much. I didn't know any better, so whatever he did, I did. Um, and then I had a basketball game. I was I was young. I think I was seven, eight, and I just came from a basketball game. My brother had a training lesson. Uh, he was playing tennis for his summer sport in school. And he got killed every match. My dad's like, nah, can't have this. We need to take him to lessons. <laughs> so I've got my full my full Sturt Sabres kit on. That's the team I was playing for in, in South Australia. So your basketball gear? Yeah, my basketball yep. gear on. Uh, and my brother was having a drink break and I just picked up a racket and started hitting a ball uh, with his coach and like was better than I thought. Like my hand eye was pretty good and started making connection with like all the balls and hitting it pretty clean. And then from then on, I just got more and more addicted to it and I actually hated Sunday afternoon practices in basketball, which were like mandatory. Little did I know picking up tennis, I'd have to do those as well. But yeah, here we are. Well, here we are. There's a, there's a bit more to it than here <laughs> we are. But what do you think it was about tennis that grabbed you? Like you talked about the individuality of it, but it, it looks to be a hard sport. There's yeah. a lot of training. There's a lot of time away, which we'll get to, but it doesn't look like an easy sport. No, I think I was just real competitive and it was one-on-one and sort of that one-on-one mental battle that I liked. I never liked losing, uh, whether it was playing video games with my brother at home or anything like that. We were really competitive and I think that's where having an older brother helped kind of instill that in me a little bit. 
And uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I just uh, I just started playing and I started to like it more and more. And I did crazy amounts of hours uh, with my coach, Todd. Uh, who's... Talk me through hours. What does crazy amount of hours mean? We have a lot of kids listening to this show. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, oh, what does crazy mean? Yeah, so I would wake up and I'd do my squad session. So like a, sort of like a Tennis Australia, Tennis South Australia session before school. So that would start at 6.45, go till about 8.30, then I'd go to a personal training session straight after that for an hour, hour and a bit. How old are you at this point? Uh, I'm about 12. Right. Yeah. So. Love it. Yeah. It was, I didn't know any better. So no. I was kind of just doing what I was told, but I enjoyed it as well. It's not like I was getting yep. forced to do it. So I training, it. then personal training. Training, then personal training. So there's about two and a half, three hours before school. I'd probably rock up to school 30 minutes, an hour late. Teachers would be pissed, is what it is. Is what it is. Then I'd leave school um, probably about half an hour early, do another squad session in the city, uh, a memorial drive for about two hours. And then I would do a gym session after that for about an hour. Ooh. I would sometimes get food on my way home or go home and eat. And then I'd sometimes rock up or actually sometimes, most times I'd go for a private lesson with my coach Todd later that night at wow. about nine o'clock or 10 o'clock. Right. That was nuts. So, so, so there's, there's a couple of questions off the back of that. Yeah. Oh, that's a serious commitment. I was doing for that a, sort of five, five days a week. Uh, as a 12 year old? 12, probably 12, honestly, till about 16. And how did your mum and dad go with the, do you throw your eggs in all? one basket and, you know, go for your life or do they say, do you need a backup plan and you're missing a bit of school here at the start of the day and the end of the day? How yeah, did yeah. your folks deal with, with that? It was always a backup plan. Um, my dad always wanted me to finish year 12, so I ended up doing that. Okay. Um, the last two years had to be via distance because I was just traveling so much. I'd come back to school and I'd have no idea. But mum and dad would always kind of argue and wrestle a little bit about how much tennis I was doing. Mum thought I was doing too much. Dad always wanted me to kind of keep going. And it's something I got good at pretty quickly. So immediately I kind of got into one of the best in my age for Australia. Yep. Kind of raising up through the ranks. And yeah, school just kind of took a back step because I thought, hang on, I've actually got something here. And I was proving myself on the world stage. Obviously, when you're 12, 13, it doesn't mean that much, but you sort of get a general idea of how good you are. So yeah, they were kind of always like tossing up and arguing a little bit about um, sort of how much tennis versus how much school I should be doing and other stuff. But yeah, I was real busy. I was learning piano, going to Greek school, doing a bunch of stuff, just staying busy. But uh, yeah, eventually I just kind of, my dad kind of understood that tennis is uh, yep. is what I'm doing and and that's that's my way forward in my career. How's your piano these days? Shit ass. No good. <laughs> yeah, so sure that's just trained off in the background of it. The crazy thing about me learning piano is yeah. I never actually could read the music. Right. So I'd have this tutor come in and show me how to play, <laughs> but I just... It was weird. I just memorized everything she did and play it. Right. So I had to perform in front of a few people and that, and I was shitting myself. But <laughs> I just copied whatever she did. I watched and I just copied whatever she did without being able to read music. So that's where I was. The, the question that often comes up at this stage, Tanasi, is how much is natural talent and how much is hard work? And I always use this example, always, too often on the show, but I'm going to use it with you anyway. Ricky Ponting would have always played, always played for Australia, tremendously talented cricketer. I don't know how much you follow cricket. Yeah. Justin Langer has just been the Australian coach, had to work every step of the way, was never the best in the age groups going up, often didn't get picked in the team. I watched that on Amazon Prime, by right. the way. It was there good, you go, it was good cracking to watch. show, yeah, yeah. the test, it's cracking nuts. show. Yeah. So, so you know the personalities yeah, yeah. I'm talking about. Where did you sit on this? Ricky Ponting was always going to get there. Justin Langer often didn't make team scale. Where are you on that scale? Um, As a, a talent, hard work. 
I didn't want, I don't want to say arrogant here, no, but no. I think I was more sort of on that Ricky Ponting Talent. sort of, to be honest. Yeah. I think from a young age, I think a lot of people saw saw it in me and, and believed in me a lot. And so did I. I. I was kind of all that way. And I did a lot of hours to kind of supplement that. And I think that's what made me um, so good from a young age. Uh, but then it's tough. It's that balance because you want to do that real hard work. But I also think maybe I overtrained at times. And I think maybe that's why at times in my career, I think my tennis was higher than my physical capabilities to kind of balance it out. So I think that's kind of what made me get injured uh, for a few years and kind of slowed me down a little bit. But I think I think I always had the natural sort of hand-eye coordination. I was pretty good at most sports growing up. I played a lot of sports, none as serious as tennis and basketball, but I always tried to dabble in everything. Um, and I felt like I was pretty coordinated and could pick up most sports. What I else tried. did you play? Did you have a crack at cricket or not? I played, no, just a little bit of lunchtime. Right, I, wouldn't, right, I wouldn't say I had right. a crack at cricket. I played uh, a little bit of school football. Okay. Um, a little bit so of soccer. So we're talking? Yeah. What uh, position are we talking here? Oh, uh, I'd say forward. Yeah, I was about to say yeah. range, you sort of yeah. centre half forward. Looks yeah. like you could run a fair bit. Yeah, I could run a little bit. Pretty good with a mark. Um, I couldn't kick that far, but I was pretty accurate. Okay. Um, and yeah, I just, I don't know. It's weird playing professional sports or playing sports at a high level from a young age. I just felt like I had... I had like a leg up on other people when I was playing even other sports. I just felt huh. like I could see the game a little bit differently. Whether I, When I was playing basketball and looked at passes and that, I felt like when I picked up a footy, I felt like I could see kind of parts of hmm. parts of the field a little bit. But then I couldn't, uh, I couldn't keep going with footy because it was just too risky injury-wise to keep playing. And what is life like as a kid being, as you said, you had tremendous natural talent, being the next big thing? How does, or do you not even realize as a kid? It's weird, like you know it as a kid, but there's there's obviously a few eyes on you, but nothing compared to when you actually like make it into the professional stage. There's always, um, it's a lot of pressure, but it's something that you kind of, you don't really know any better at a young age. So you don't really let pressure kind of affect you because it's just like you train all year, all every day, um, just for the moment, just to get better and improving. And that's all you really care about when you're younger. You want you always have these lofty, lofty aspirations to be number one in the world, win Grand Slams and that. But when, he, when you're young, you don't realize how hard that is. You just mm. think it's going to happen. So you just keep training, training, training every day. So I don't think pressure really comes into it until you get a little bit older. That's for me anyway. Next up on the Howie Games, a lady that dominated the Commonwealth Games in the pool and went to three separate Olympics, Lisa Curry. Lisa has lived a life and a half and has many, many stories to tell. Look at Lisa in lane four. She's coming now. It's Van Werdem and Curry, the two Australians. They come to the 20-metre mark. Curry, I think she's in front. Yes, it's Curry. That's Lisa Curry next up on the Howie Games. Back to Tanasi. I don't make many notes, but I, I, occasionally I have to refer to them. That's right. So you need to tell me whether I've got this right. Yeah. Kokonakis began his professional career in March 2011 at the Australia F3 Futures event at the age of 14. Yeah. Where he lost 6-8 in the third set tiebreak to old mate Leaping Leo Frost. That's hilarious, that story. Right. Well, tell me. Where, where <laughs> is it first? I want to know. Like, you're 14. Yeah. So tell me about this. Yeah, that was nuts. Um I got a wild card by one of the Australian selectors into a, a pro tournament. It's the lowest level pro tournament, yep. but nevertheless, still but you, a pro but tournament. But you're 14, mate. I am. I am 14. It's pretty young to think about it. As I said, I started off pretty good when I was young. Yep. Um, and getting your first ATP point or professional ranking point, to be honest, it's something that like all players, like a lot of players try their heart out and never make it, no. never get one. And it's put on such a high pedestal. And realistically, looking back, it's like, no one really cares because it's one point. 
but like at the time when you're that age, it's like everything. Like you train your whole life for this with this one moment. And I got a wild card into this event. Um, Where was it? This was in uh, Ipswich. Yeah, Ipswich. <laughs> exactly. So it's Roland Garros, yeah, Flushing Meadows, yeah. Ipswich. <laughs> Ipswich, exactly. <laughs> you got to yeah. start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So Ipswich, and um, <laughs> I'm playing this match out against like a journeyman that Frost is. Well, I don't know how leaping old he was. Leo Frost, Leon Le- Frost, leaping. Yeah, right. I've added leaping to be fair. It just yeah, says Leon Frost. He didn't do here. much leaping. I don't think he was that athletic. So um, he, he was a he was a bloke. He was a yeah, man. Yeah, he was like I think he was like 26 or right. 24 or something like <laughs> He's that. He's singing. Who's this punk? Yeah, he had like a deep voice, and I'm coming out here with just like looking ridiculous. I got. Nothing on me, no skin tone, like no muscle tone, whatever. <laughs> I'm going out there and I'm playing and uh, it's deep in the third set. We get in the third set tiebreak and it's 4-2. And Ipswich, I don't know if you know, but it's like just flood central yes. out of nowhere. It just yep. pierces down with rain. And 4-2, I can see the finish line. I'm like, I'm about to do it. I've got a pretty decent crowd of like people watching. Like This 14-year-old's going to get a point. Um, this is going to be a big moment. And then the rain just starts bucketing down. I'm like, you're <laughs> fucking kidding me. I was like, this is not what I need. I'm like, it's all right. It's not going to phase me. It's not going to phase me. Whatever. We go back. Um, it gets called off. We thought it was going to get called off for the day. It's like rain like I've never seen before. And these are clay courts, so they can kind of take a little bit of rain. But also, it gets to a point where sometimes they get too flooded. <laughs> so I go back. I'm in the van. I'm about to drive back to the hotel. And I see my opponent, this like 26-year-old bloke and he's bawling his eyes out to the car i'm like i'm like with all the boys i'm like hey look at this guy <laughs> right like, look at him he's like 26 and he's about to lose to me like he's crying like he's got nothing i'm like this guy is a mess and he was this like big strong dude but he was like kind of a big friendly giant so he'd yep. like kind of cry and a bit softly spoken it was a bit weird anyway we come back like three four hours later we get called back to play I end up losing the match 8-6 in the third set tiebreaker. Rolls are reversed. I'm the one crying. I'm like, oh, no. I've never been. I was like, I'm never, never going to get my chance again. Like, it's never going to happen again. So, you, zero points. You don't get your point there? No, nah, I don't get my point. He, right. get, he gets his point. Right. I'm pissed off and I'm crying. <laughs> I'm going to the car crying and he's the one probably laughing at me now. But then yes. the following week against old mate Kento Takushi. Takushi yeah. at the Australia F4 event. So you were in the F3. Yeah. Now you're at the F4. Is this still a nip switch or have you moved on somewhere? I've moved on to glamorous Bundaberg. <laughs> <laughs> I hope even... all the kids out there listening that want to be a professional realise this is where it starts. So oh. now you're in Bundaberg. We're not even playing on clay courts. It's called ant bed. It's right. like I don't even know what surface it is. But yeah, as uh, next week, it's actually a nice place. Like kind of. There's like there's good surf, so good weather, so that's fun to have. But yep. um, yeah, I thought I'd never get my chance again, and I end up playing like a, a great match, and I end up uh, winning in three sets, and it was probably the happiest day of my life up until that point. So you win. Now, I don't know whether you're going to be able to recall this. What is, you, you get your first point. Congratulations. You got your first ATP point and Kento hasn't scored a point there. <laughs> uh, what about paycheck for winning your, oh, your first game? Now, give me, give me like, oh. are we talking two grand or 200 bucks? Settle. Right. Yeah, it's like 300 bucks, 350 bucks. But you're away. Oh, yeah. I didn't care about the money at that point. So, I was... We're this not is buying sweet. a Ferrari at this stage. But say your first, your first professional paycheck. We're barely paycheck. buying a toy car. Right, right. Yeah. So a couple hundred bucks for your first hundred, professional. Uh, I think, yeah, it might have been about 400. Right. Might have been about 400, but I think it made me one of the youngest ever to get an ATP point, a professional point. So you're so, still 14 at this stage? Yeah, I'm still 14. I think I'm turning 15 in a few months. Um, and yeah, it was a pretty, pretty crazy achievement. I remember the next round, I played the number two seed. It was about 300 in the world or something. Yep. People that don't know, like rankings go up to people about sort of 2,000 now, 2,000 and a bit. 
And I had a set point in the first set of uh, against the guy 300. So conked in the ass, died in the ass in the second set, lost at 6-1, but had a chance, had a little right. sniff, and then my career was kind of going from there. So with rankings, um, do, like, do you know your current ranking? Do you know where you are at the moment? Uh, I think I'm around 90. 90, okay. Something like that. Okay, so yeah. in the top 100. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. okay. I, I looked at the video, 2013. I want to get away from the timeline, but there's a few things I would want to ask you about. You win the junior Wimbledon doubles with your mate Nick. Yeah. There was another glimpse of the stars of tomorrow in the boys' doubles final on number three court. Mauritius-born Frenchman Enzo Cuoco alongside Italian Stefano Napolitano against young Australians Thanasi Kokonakis and Nick Kyrgios, the junior world number one. Feeding him, you like you, you boys. People need to search <laughs> it up, and you've got. You got your Bjorn Borg <laughs> yeah. Wimbledon headbands on. Some of the rudest kit I've seen. Oh, yeah, we bought we bought it at the Wimbledon store, <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like you bought it at exactly. the Wimbledon store. Exactly. Um, so, when did you first start playing with or against Nick? Because obviously, that's part of the story of why we're here today. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, I met Nick. So I won my regional. It's called this Kids Cup event, and I won my regional competition in Adelaide. And there was one in Victoria, Sydney, around sort of Australia and all the winners kind of met up and played in Canberra. Nick's a year older, so I think he played their uh, age group a year above. Um, and yeah, I won mine and Nick won his and we ended up going to the finals in Canberra. And it was the first time I saw him, this kind of big fat dude. Who oh, just, he, like, he, yeah, he was a big boy. Right. Um, and he knows it. Uh, right. <laughs> but uh, he was a clean ball striker and just like real talented and everyone's like, who's this bloke? Just big, loud. He's pretty much the same bloke, honestly. Okay. Just but, a bit like, skinnier. Yeah, just a bit skinnier. Um and yeah, just uh, from there we started. He was he's born ninety ninety five, so he was the top of his age group there, and I'm ninety six, and I was the top of my age group. And ever since then, we started sort of playing. So I met him first when I was probably ten, and he was eleven. Huh. Yeah, and we've just kind of known each other since, and represented Australia with each other. And yeah, so just ha- from then ha- on. how do you like two thousand thirteen? What you're you're still under eighteen at that stage. Yeah, I was sixteen. And just to underline the junior world number one's dominance, another ace to clinch it. A stunning victory from the two Australians. Kyrgios defends the title he won last year with a different partner. And Kokonakis, who's barely played since the Australian Open because of a stress factor in his back, joins his compatriot as the Wimbledon Boys Junior Doubles Champions 2013. How do a couple of 16-year-olds celebrate winning Wimbledon? Like, is, is it a pizza or like... It's not much. Right. Probably a McFlurry, right. I reckon, at <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> no, we did, we did get invited to the Wimbledon Ball, which is pretty cool. So right. you go with all the champions. Yeah. of black tie. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty nuts. I think it was the first time I uh, had a legit black and white suit. Right. So I didn't McFlurry. mind it. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, it was probably a McFlurry and some Skittles from the servo. <laughs> I had nothing else. I didn't know what to do. Um, and yeah, it was pretty cool because I think, I don't know who won it that year, maybe Djokovic won Wimbledon that year or Murray. Yep. It's pretty cool. They bring their partners. You can bring a date. I brought my coach. I uh, didn't really have a date back then. And yeah, it was a, it was a pretty cool cool experience. And when does, is, there's, um, there's a couple of big sports management agencies. Um, there was a company and they've changed hands, but they were Advantage International. And there's a few others, obviously yep. IMG, yep. Um, that have had a, a heavy tennis focus. Yeah. When... Does that first arrive in your world where people are approaching you? I don't know whether it's when you're winning in Bundaberg or whether you're winning Wimbledon or whether you're nine. Like I, I live down the coast and there's surfers that start getting gear at age seven. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Where, where does this happen in the tennis world and how did you and your family approach the business side of your sport? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so so it, 
what, 28 minutes in and I've asked a good one. So that's good. <laughs> no, at, least no. at least I've got one There's away. More. <laughs> no, 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 you're right, mate. You're right. You're that's right. funny. You're right. Um, nah, so probably I went overseas. Um, it's called this... There's these two events in America called Eddie Her and Orange Bowl. Yep. And they're two big sort of junior, the biggest junior tennis events in the world. I went over when I was uh, 11, I think, playing in the 12 and unders. And I think I made the quarterfinals with singles and won doubles and mixed doubles and did the same for the next sort of couple of tournaments. I always made quarters, singles and won the doubles. And from then I picked up a Babolat sponsorship. Um, that I didn't have an agent then, but I think sort of a year or two after when I was sort of 13 or 14, you get recognized by these scouts. So they want to offer you clothes and they want to offer you uh, racket deals. Um, not much money back then unless you're so far better than the rest of the competition. When you're 12, 13, you don't really earn anything. But then sort of about 15, um, that's when I got an agent, probably about uh, a legit one, probably about 15. Um, mm. And that's when I started to uh, to go on from there. That was a CAA and it was a big company. And part of the reason why I was really keen on signings because I had my favorite NBA player, Chris Paul. Right. So they were a massive, massive agency right. that had... Um, did you get to meet him? I did meet him. Yeah. So it was Both cool. So yeah, we, we started speaking after that. And um, yeah, they had some massive names. They had Cristiano Ronaldo, they had Djokovic for a little bit. Obviously, wow. the, yeah, there was it was a massive... They had a lot of actors as well. Creative Artist Agency, it's called, but the tennis division now is done. But uh, yeah, they had a lot of a lot of big names. So... That was part of the, and when I'm younger, I was just like, whatever, I'm, I'm cool, I'm signing. But Adidas did a cool poach to me as well uh, before with Nike. They got Dwight Howard to send me a message, like a voice recording. So that was pretty nuts. I was with my, uh, with my mates at school and I played it out loud. And he was like on no. fire at that point when he was at the Magic. So he was like one of the best players in the league. And he sent me a voice message being like, uh, we want you to sign with the Adidas family and all of that. So that was that made my that made my day. Wow, that that's cool, sick. isn't it? Yeah. That's truly a yeah. big international organisation. Yeah, it was cool. Are your first Australian Open? Um, tell us about playing at the Australian Open for the first time. So you're only a young bloke again. Seventeen. Yeah, you're seventeen. Yeah, I started young. Twenty fourteen. Yeah. You won the first round. Yeah. And then defeated in the second round by a bloke by the name of Nadal. Yeah. So you're 17. Yeah. Newcomer on the scene. Playing Nadal. against Nadal. <laughs> yeah. So how does a kid approach that? Well, I, I, I presume at some stage you probably had a poster of him on your wall. I, yeah, I, for I sure know, I would but... have. For sure I would have. I remember him playing Leighton uh, when he was sort of 17, 18. He was the new kid on the block and he took Leighton to five sets at Aussie Open. I think the year. Fourth round. Yeah. I, think, I, I was working there at they Channel the 7. White, the blue and white single Mate, I'll never forget it. I was yeah. working there at Channel 7. They said, oh, you need to go out and interview this bloke that's playing here at the next round. He's a Spanish bloke. I said, what's his name? They said, we don't know. But <laughs> don't it was know. Nadal. Mm. And we had to do it through his Uncle Tony yeah. because he hardly spoke any English at that yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. And you do a million interviews. Yeah. I, I didn't know at that stage that Rafa Nadal would be Rafa Nadal. Exactly. But by the time you hit him up. He was. He was Rafa <laughs> he Nadal. definitely was him. Yeah, well, I think... I, uh, it was pretty funny. I had to do a Babolat interview because we use the same racket brand like a day or two before and it was like a joking question. I was like, oh, if we win, both win our first rounds, like, will you be nervous? So I, I asked him that to his face and I was 17. Everyone's like, is this kid serious? Like, that was the nerve on him. <laughs> I like the confidence like, yeah, on the kid. Exactly. I was like, screw it. I'll just ask her what's the worst that can happen. Sure enough, he wasn't too nervous. But anyway, <laughs> um, I got prepared for that actually the week before. I played, I was in qualifying for the Brisbane International. I think it was my first professional ATP tournament. I got a wild card in the qualifying. I ended up qualifying and I drew Leighton Hewitt first round. Wow. Um, which is pretty nuts because we'd known each other a mm. little bit just from being from Adelaide and I've maybe hit with him a couple of times and he's seen me sort of play from afar a little bit. But yeah, I actually pushed him and it ended up being like a real close match on 
New Year's Eve uh, in Brisbane in front of a full Pat Rafter arena. I was shitting myself. I was nervous as anything, but I was just playing off the energy on the crowd. I had the fanatics going for Leighton, going for me, going back and forth. I remember in the second set, I was up like a break. Uh, and then I started to get a little bit arrogant. I started to get a bit cocky to the crowd and then it bit me in the ass because he came back and, <laughs> and killed me. He ended up winning the tournament though, so I didn't feel too bad. But uh, that that kind of set me up for the next week to, to go out and play Rafa. I remember the second round, well, the first round I played, it was that hot. It was like 46 degrees. Um, it wasn't that humid, but I was cramping everywhere in the third and fourth sets. Um, my opponent was struggling as well. He was from Holland, so he probably just came from the winter. Jeez. Well, if you're ego-sizing and you know that your young opponent is struggling like this, if you were fully fit yourself, you'd just try to keep the ball in the court, wouldn't you? You'd try to prolong the points. But I'm not sure he's, uh, his body's that capable right now either. This will be interesting here now. So I kind of got luck, lucked out with the draw a little bit there, but yeah, I was cramping and then I had the fans just like banging on the sides, um, just getting myself going. And I was like, shit, this is what you, this is what you watch on TV and this is what, what makes it so special. having that and then again it was 45 or 46 the next day I was supposed to play Nadal uh, and I actually had to shut the roof it was that hot because the heat rule came in Thanasi Kokinakis and the delightfully named Seacom Heights in Adelaide being to be the lowest ranked player ever to beat the world number one um, but I remember I started off alright and it was I think 6-2 6-4 or something along those lines and it was actually like a pretty competitive match for for me, I was built like an absolute stick, mm. um, and he was number one in the world at the time, and yeah, it was a pretty cool experience to play him. Game set match. Very impressive performance from Nadal. He'd be happy with that. He got a really good hit out, and Kokonakis can certainly be proud of the performance that he put in, only 17 years of age up against one of the all-time greats who was in fine form. That is the end of Tanasi Kokonakis Part A. Don't be missing Puppy. Listener.